Second Samuel and chapter two. Thank you, Ronald. It would help to have a chapter. Actually, that we're going to be in the first chapter and then move into the second chapter. And um, the King Saul um, has had happen exactly what uh, the Lord said would happen to him. And as he rejected God, um, the end of his life is a warning for us, really. Thank you, sir. What happens when we go our own way? And we've been through all this before. I don't need to go through all that again. I'm just trying to kind of recap to continue on here. So we had two contrasts between David and Saul. A king versus a soon-to-be king. And David, although not perfect, um, he had a heart for God. And he had a desire to obey God, and we're going to see that again today as he continually inquires, Lord, what should I do? What should I do? That was really never a question for Saul. It was always kind of, it always, um, he's uh, portrayed as someone that just kind of decides for himself without any real um, concern for what God would have him to do. And if it happens to coincide, then great. We see here in the midst of all that, though, and what happened with Saul and, of course, Saul's sons, too. And it's a reminder to us that um, the way that we live our lives doesn't just affect us, just ourselves personally, but it affects the people around us. It affects our family. Uh, not that God doesn't give grace for our kids, our children, and, and those around us, but um, we have to be careful never to think, oh, my sin is only affecting me. It won't affect anybody else. It will have an impact on people all around us. And so Saul loses his three sons. We're going to find out today about a second one, or a, I'm sorry, a fourth one um, that we hadn't heard of before. But three sons, Jonathan among them, that lose their lives because of his disobedience. And David, when he hears the news, and we went through what happened with the uh, Amalekite, and his killing of King Saul or his, his um, testimony of doing that, David has him killed. And then David writes this beautiful lament about Saul and Jonathan. And it's if David really writes as one that has no bitterness toward King Saul at all. I mean, King Saul and his disobedience literally made um, life incredibly difficult for David. And yet he honors him at the end of his life because he recognizes Saul was God's anointed. And so as we continue to read through the second part of this lament song, verse 23, we're going to hear only the positive things about King Saul. Um, and as you would expect in something like this, at a time like this, you only, we, we of course, because of the venue, we focus on the positive things when someone dies. <clears throat> but these are not insincere. These are things that um, are legitimate. There was some good aspects to Saul's life. And you can tell by the end of this song, David's pain and his sorrow over his friend's loss. So let's, let's you know, we'll begin at verse 19 and then we'll, we'll move to 23. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, 
Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Here describing their um, mighty majesty in battle and their valiantry and he continues verse 23 then and we'll start with this today Saul and Jonathan beloved and lovely in life and in death they were not divided they were swifter than eagles they were stronger than lions now you may not think of the word beloved and lovely as adjectives that you would want said of you and maybe at least uh, us we as men us um, would not necessarily want to be referred to as lovely. That would be a little strange. We just need to understand as far as the Old Testament Hebrew goes here, this is basically describing these men as mighty warriors and their ability. And in their ability in battle, it is a beautiful thing. They are almost, it's almost the idea of of gracefulness in, in battle. These are warriors that are capable is really the idea there. Not that, um, course that you know Saul and Jonathan were are portrayed as handsome um, not necessarily lovely but you get the idea there and then it says in life and death they were not divided and you think well wait a minute I remember a whole lot of discrepancies and difficulties between Jonathan and his father right but those are just a few isolated incidences folks throughout folks throughout their lives really Um, I I think Jonathan was very close to his father in a lot of ways. They're obviously on the battlefield together. They had fought battles together. Um, They had had a lot of of moments where they were um, close and had a close relationship. And it seems like in battle, they were able to fight very well together. That's why there says they're swifter than eagles they're stronger than lions. Again, David is pointing all the good aspects of Saul and saying, These men were capable, mighty warriors. They were able to get the job done when it came to battling the enemy. And so, verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously, luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. This has the idea of wealth. And David, again, focusing on the positives here, he says, You people of Israel, and many times it would be the women that would pick up the the weeping and the lament during a funeral procession. He says it's appropriate to weep over our loss because Saul was very successful, brought us much wealth Um, as our first king. um, He he did, uh, was successful in um, making Israel a stronger, wealthier nation. And so he's focusing on these things. Again, you don't sense any bitterness at all. And and really, again, Saul made David's life miserable for a long time. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. And then he turns to his friend, and you can hear the pain in his voice. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. This has the idea of great emotional pain. He is feeling the loss of his friend. And he knows that he, is, he has a true loss here. Um, and like we've, I've said before, whenever we lose someone who encourages us in the Lord, uh, it, is, it is a true loss. Um, and he continues on. He says, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary. And this is 
Uh, this next description is one of the controversial ones, it says surpassing the love of women. And unfortunately, uh, in our culture today and, and through the years, scholars have twisted, uh, liberal scholars, and culture has twisted this verse to, obviously, we won't go into detail, but to mean something that it does not mean. Uh, and it is very unfortunate. Well, what is David saying here? Well, let's look at some very acceptable reasons for why he would say that his friendship with Jonathan really saying was the most important friendship in his life. Jonathan, out of all the people in his life, was the most sacrificial, the most giving, the most loving in David's life. He was the one that he had the closest companionship with. Even if you think of the women in David's life, um, he was married to Michael and she helped him escape. Um, but then she blamed it kind of on him after he escaped. And she doesn't seem to be that really, she doesn't seem to have a strong or any relationship with God at all. Um, Abigail provided wisdom for David uh, that that one time kept him, of course, from fighting and, and killing her fool of a husband, Nabal. Um, and then we don't hear really anything about his wife, Ahinoam. Uh, but we know we, we have a lot of data about what Jonathan did in helping David. And so basically, one of the things that he's pointing out here is you showed me more loyalty and, and the love of God than anyone else in my life. And that's true. There's no reason to make this um, any way uh, delve into wickedness in the midst of, of what David's trying to say here. There is another aspect as well that, that's very practical. I think we understand this, especially in this culture, in Middle Eastern culture at this time. Um, relations, friendships with men, uh, with men were just stronger. Um, with women, they, they weren't, it's unfortunate, but in this society, uh, women were kind of considered second class and they had their place, um, but there wasn't the strong, always the strong relationships between men and women that, you know, we're used to today in marriage and different things. Um, there was more of a camaraderie Jonathan and, and David, and they had um, they, they were together more in battle and different things and shared more experiences than he ever would have with a woman. And so that's in play here, too. Two very um, practical, reasonable solutions for what David is saying here. And we don't want to lose the beauty of this. David is mourning really the most important relationship in his life because Jonathan loved God like he loved God. Jonathan had a heart for God like David did. And David's mourning that loss. And then he says, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And this was a song that David instituted for the people to sing on a regular basis as a psalm and a lament. And we mentioned this last week. It's good at times just to go to the Lord, even as God's people. As some of the hymns that we sing, most of them are very positive and um, and joyful, and that's good, but every so often it's good to have a more reflective song, one that reflects on the brokenness of our, of our world um, and looks toward the hope of, of Jesus coming. These are important things, too, and we see some of the Psalms that David has written in the book of Psalms that are more along the lines of this, that when you read at the end, you don't always leave with a, with a real positive, happy um, note in, in, your, in your spirit but they're important. They point out the brokenness and it points to the 
desire for Jesus to come and make everything right again in the midst of a broken world. Well, after this, we get into chapter two now. And notice David's, his regular reaction to decisions in his life at this point. David has learned, we'll see this, that to trust and to inquire of God in every decision that he makes. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And David said to him, or the Lord said to him, excuse me, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, the Lord said to Hebron. Now, David, remember where he's at, right? He and his family and his men are still at Ziklag, this burned out town, smoke still rising. He's, he's sent um, gifts of spoil from the Amalekites to a lot of the neighboring um, uh, towns, Israelite towns, and Hebron was one that he sent a good portion of the spoils to because they had been affected by the Amalekites. But you know, he's sitting there in this burnt out town saying, you would naturally, he'd be thinking, let's just get out of here. And his men would say, yeah, let's just get anywhere besides here, David. Let's, Saul's dead. Let's go home. We all know what's about to happen here. But before David does anything else, he says, no men, first of all, let's talk to God. Let's ask God what he wants us to do. And even as far as, Lord, do you want us to move from this burnt out town? Is it time for us to go to any of the cities in Judah? Is it time for us to move on? And the Lord says very clearly, probably through um, the priests, the priests and the um, Urim and the Thummim, somehow God made it clear, go up. And then David says, okay, but I want to know specifically, Lord, where do you want us to go? And God says specifically to Hebron. Um, why Hebron? Well, it was a, a really good, uh, it was a perfect choice, actually, and you, you would expect that because God told them to go there, so of course it's the best way for them to, or thing for them to do, proceed to Hebron. Hebron was a large city that was a perfect choice for David and his people. It was a city of refuge. It was a distinguished city from the time of Caleb, all the way back, remember Caleb and Joshua, when Caleb settled in the land, this city of Hebron was associated with him, and it was also a Levitical city for the priesthood, a large city, which was important because, remember, at this point, David has quite a large entourage, huge army, families growing, can't just settle down in a small town or a small village. God says, go to Hebron. So I brought a map so we can see these things, and let's see, Hudson, would you, would you go around? This will give you a good idea here of where Hebron is. It's the capital city soon of, of David's territory here in Judah. And then we'll talk about Ishbosheth here in a minute. Ishbosheth's um, area where he reigns is in green. And then it just didn't print out very well, so I had to take one of my son's markers and do this little brown line to show you David's territory. Can you go ahead and take that right over there to Miss Rana and she'll pass it around to everybody else? And then we'll pass it over to you all eventually. There's a lot of places named here. And so that map will be a real help just to give us an idea of, of what we're talking about here. Um, and so David obeys God, moves in, and he has such a large group of people. It says, 
Um, verse two, David went up there and his two wives also, remember Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the son of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And that gives the idea that they were so large, they literally had to move out into the suburbs, so to speak, of this large city of Hebron. And they've filled up this place uh, with people. And at the same time, verse four, the men of Judah came. And finally, now, this is what we've been waiting for, right? David to be king after all of this. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. The elders from his tribe come to anoint him king. Again, if Samuel's already done that, right? But this is a sign that his kingship is legitimate and approved by God. And, you know, there very well could have been some men in this entourage that were there for David's first anointing, all the way back when Samuel did that. And so certainly it was a moving, it was a big event. And uh, God is positioning David now um, in exactly his plan and his timing to lead But then there comes news to David at the end of verse 4. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Now, do you remember that? After Saul uh, was killed in battle and the Philistines unfortunately found the bodies and desecrated the bodies. Uh, You know, uh, it was it was common practice to when you came across leaders, the kings uh, uh, of defeated armies to raise their their heads up and and Philistines cut off arms and and different things and mangled the bodies. And these men went all the way from across the Jordan into enemy territory very bravely and recovered the bodies and gave them a proper burial. Very courageous, very brave, all because they wanted to honor the king. Now, that's right in line with David's spirit on things too, isn't it? And so when they told, told David, and this is probably a story that's been going around Israel. Can you believe, man, these guys are brave. They, they went and they recovered the, the bodies and they did all of this. And it gets back to David. And David does something that's very sincere, but it also helps him politically too. God is giving him political wisdom here as well in the midst of a sincere response. David sent messengers to these men. They were far north of him beyond the Jordan. And he said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. He calls for a blessing upon these men. Again, just just marvel at the fact there is no hard feelings with David here. He rejoices when he hears how they treated the bodies. And he says, may God give you a blessing because you were faithful and loyal to God's man, and you did the right thing, and showed him respect, and you buried him appropriately, and then he calls more uh, more uh, exact, detailed blessings upon them. Verse 6, now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Two of the most important aspects of God's character to his people, his steadfast love, his hesed, um, which means loyalty toward his own people. And uh, David says, 
May you experience God's steadfast love throughout your whole lives and his faithfulness. And I will do what I can to show you that. Here's a promise from David that I will do good to you the rest of my life. Well, that's a really good promise from the one that's going to be the future king. You're already in good there. And he's promised you that he will always remember your valiant deeds. Um, I'm sure that was encouraging to them. But it was also wise on David's part. It showed that he had no hard feelings and he had no um, personal plans to overthrow Saul in any way. He shows his loyalty and his own respect for Saul to the people of Israel in doing this. And so it's sincere. Yes, David really felt this, but it's also wise. It lets Israel know that David is not trying to usurp Saul or his throne in, in any way. So very good. And then he encourages them. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul, your Lord is dead. He knows there's still the people are still hurting. They've lost their king. They've lost the princes. Right. And that's a very difficult thing. And so um, David's basically saying he's calling them to strengthen their hands and become men of virtue. Uh, warriors, mighty warriors like Saul was. He said, you're going to have to toughen up. We've lost our king men. But I want you to know that the tribe of Judah has anointed me to be king over them. And in doing this, David is also saying, and I'll be willing to be your king as well, trying to carefully bring the people together. And he says, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And at that point, if you hadn't read further, you would think, great, this is what we've been waiting for. Finally, David gets to be king, right? He gets to be king over all of Israel. He's had, how many things has he had to go through? He, um, he showed himself valiant with, with um, uh, Goliath, and he became a mighty um, commander for the armies of Saul. Saul gets jealous, obviously, and David's on the run. He's had to run through the wilderness all over the country with his men and try to and, and escape death many times. Finally goes over to the Philistines, right? And you know all that. And has to deal with the Amalekites the whole time. Overall, David giving a testimony of faithfulness and loyalty to God. And so anybody would think, okay, he, he's had his time. He's done due diligence, Lord. He's, he's ready. He's prepared. He's also been um, presented as the, uh, the closest person in Israel with the, with, the, with the most dedicated, sincere heart for God out of anyone else, certainly over Saul and over others. All right, let's make him king. We're ready. But that's not going to happen yet. In verse 8 here, there's still some more obstacles to David's being king of Israel. Let's look at verse eight. But there's that awful word, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manhanaim. Um, Abner is Saul's cousin. He was his commander in battle. Obviously, he survived the battle. And Abner says, basically, as David is 
very wisely trying to reach out to the northern tribes and trying to bring them together. Abner says, wait a minute. Oh, not yet, David. We're not ready. Not so fast. Uh, Saul was king and his offspring and his close friends. Abner, as the commander of Saul's army, would have been one of his closest friends. So he'd been very loyal. Oh, we would almost expect his reaction in this way to say, you know, uh, it's, it's normal policy to consider <laughs> Saul's family and his son as the next king. And so one of the surprises here is that there still is a son of Saul left. If, if now we all, we have all read this before, but again, if you'd read this for the first time, the sons of Saul would have been with him in battle. So how can he have any left? Why is Ishbosheth even a factor here? Well, we don't know. I just throw out a, a couple of things here. Um, he, they could have, we, we're going to find out later on that he's a pretty weak king and he doesn't last very long. And that might kind of uh, in, insinuate that he was a weak uh, warrior as well, that he wasn't very good in battle. So they just kind of said, Ishbosheth, just kind of stay behind. <laughs> and you can watch the, you can watch over the home and, and all this while we're at battle, or probably even a better idea here. They knew in just in case the rest, everyone else died in battle, there would be one of Saul's sons to take over. So they protected them and sent and kept him back. Maybe that's more what's going on here. And now they're bringing Ishbosheth out to be king. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. And you probably you think, well, where are those places located? Well, that's why you had your map. You see that, all that green area, that northern area? Not all of Israel. If you look to the west by the seacoast, the Philistines are still pretty dominant in that area. But Ishbosheth now is ruling over the greater part of Israel in this, and David is ruling over Judah. So the divided kingdom, actually, this, Israel was divided long before Solomon messed up uh, in the book of Kings, and for a short time here is divided between Judah and the rest of Israel. And Ishbosheth, then verse 10, Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. I'm sure that's not what David was expecting at this point. He was hoping to reunite everybody and to be the king. God had promised him this, but here we have a king, king, uh, kingdom divided. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, we probably have some folks that love math or love math problems. We do the math here. Ishbosheth reigned two years. We're not going to tell you what happened at the end of those two years yet. But it says David was over the house of Judah. That means, from what we can tell here, he was king in Hebron over Judah for seven years and six months. So that's five and a half years after Ishbosheth is removed out of the way. Now, what's going on here? Again, we don't know for certain. I could just throw out a couple possibilities that the Bible really doesn't say. Um, but scholars say that it took David five and a half years to really kind of bring the southern kingdom together. And then Abner made Ishbosheth king for those last two years. Or on the opposite of that, that which I think is more probable here, that Ishbosheth was king of Israel for the first two years, 
But then for the rest, the, the, the rest five and a half years, that it took that long for David to kind of bring everybody together and be king over all of Israel. Now, that's just two options. And really, I want, the only thing I want to say with that is we don't know and it doesn't matter. Here's what I want to emphasize is before we go to prayer here is that um, it still was not something that David expected, right? I think his idea was he'd been anointed king. Uh, Samuel had come himself and anointed him. He'd gone through all of these things. He's reaching out. David, every step that he takes, it says here, he inquired of the Lord. He asked of the Lord. He is being faithful. He's being obedient. And now I'm sure he was thinking, now it's time. And he actually has to wait another seven and a half years. In our minds, that doesn't make sense, does it? Now, of course, we know we read the word and say, well, it, obviously it was God's sovereign plan for him. So it made sense. But think on, on David's account and even think of things in your own life. Make it more personal. Have you ever had a situation where things were working out and you had achieved a certain level of, of whatever um, in your job or, or, or you had a certain expectation that was reasonable? Um, you had a certain amount of tenure and you were ready for the next position and your boss maybe promised you that you would get that position. And then at the last minute, he says, I'm sorry, we've got some, we've got somebody else who's maybe, and you know, they're not as qualified as you, but because of politics or because of a name or because of a relationship, nepotism, whatever, um, we're going to have to, we're going to give this person the position, or you're going to share the position rather than have all of the responsibility and the remuneration that you would have had. We're going to split this up into two positions now. And you just look at the situation and say, God, why? That doesn't make sense to me. I mean, everything in my life, I was obeying you. I was doing this. And it's just, you know, I, this is the last thing that I was expecting. Why are you allowing this to happen? And let me go a little further with this too. Uh, there are some times where we can see God's working in our life and immediately see, okay, I see what God's doing. I see why he's allowing this to happen. I see why he kept me back from that. That makes sense. And those things, those things are easier to bear, aren't they? What's the hardest thing a lot of times to bear? When God allows something to your life, and there's really no, in your own mind, reasonable, practical exp explanation for why he's doing it this way. That's frustrating. And a lot of times that can move Christians to be frustrated and to lose faith and to get angry with God because, and, and you might even have people around you that say, why didn't you, why didn't you get this? Or why didn't this happen in your life? Everybody around you might say, you're ready for this. I mean, David is the most prepared person for leadership in all of Israel. Nobody's going to argue that. And so we would say, Lord, just let him be king. These people need a good man leading the whole kingdom. Why wait? And that's when we go back to God's sovereignty in all these things. What doesn't make sense to us still is under God's sovereign control. And God uses hindrances that may seem almost nonsensical to help us become more reliant on him. Haven't we even seen that in our own church? Our church has been through, over the past many years, some very difficult things. 
and you all have given testimony that you prayed and you and, and the Lord worked and you could see him working in situations and you could see, Lord, this is okay. I get why you did this and why you did this. Still don't understand that, but we're ready for a pastor and praying and it, a pastor didn't come right away. And then the Lord eventually called us here through a number of circumstances. And now uh, once we came, the next step was, all right, Lord, we've been saving up money for a building and we're ready and we've got a pastor and, you know, we've got a good group. And then 2020 hit and everything spun out of control. And now we're here and the Lord has provided this place. But let's be honest, many times we think, Lord, we're ready. We've, we've gone through a lot. <laughs> we've gone through a lot of trial and testing. And you almost made me think, how much more prepared can a people be? Let's, we love our own place and our own property and our own. And we have to remember that God has reasons for why he allows things into our lives that sometimes we may never find out. We may never know on this earth. But we still have to be faithful and trust him. And it makes us more dependent on him, especially when we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. He wants us to depend and be more reliant on him. And through these things, David is going to continue to grow and be more reliant. Next week, we're going to see this week. We kind of saw what happens when difficult things, events come into your life. Unexplainable events. Next week, we're going to see what happens when the people that are on your team, on your side, that you trust aren't acting in a right way and are, and are making things miserable for you. Maybe your own family or maybe your own church. And you, God has worked in your life and brought you to a certain point. And now the people around you that are closest to you are acting in ways that aren't appropriate and um, that are, are being um, ornery and difficult. What do you do then? And David's going to show us the way forward for that as well.